Well, it is great to be with all of you this morning. Um, It is a beautiful day here in Edna, Texas to worship the living God together and to continue to enjoy fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ and hopefully to have a great study this morning in our Forerunners of the Faith curriculum. We're picking up where we left off from our time together last week. Um, Our previous study in Lesson 3 focused on Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch, two early church fathers that were really in the uh, first 50 to 60 years of the second century church. So does anybody remember what that period of history is spanning from about 180 to about 580 just by way of review? Started with a P and it's in your book. Wait. Patristic. There you go. Hannah, Ellie. That was a tag team answer. Very good. So yeah, so Ignatius and Clement were two of the most famous or prominent patristic theologians. That word patristic is a Latin term meaning father, um, referring to the early church fathers, which is a period that most church historians attribute to the year 100 AD to about the year 500 AD. And we're going to continue to look at some of those figures in this section of the Forerunners of the Faith curriculum. And as we pick up from where we left off during our last study, we're going to look specifically at a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp of Smyrna. Um, Died around the year 155 AD. Not sure of the year of his birth, but as we'll see together during our time this morning, this was a very important figure from the patristic era. Had direct relationships with some of the earliest apostles that we see in the uh, New Testament record. Looking forward to seeing uh, what we learn about him today. But before we get too far into this study, I do need a volunteer to read Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 60. And um, once I get a volunteer for that, I'll pray to get us started. And Hannah's going to read that text. And um, I'll pray. And then after I pray, Hannah, you can jump right into Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 60. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time of study. Father, indeed, it is a great day to worship you and to rest from our weekly labors, to take the time to pause and remind ourselves of the very purpose for which we exist, which is to know you and enjoy you forever. And Father, this time as brothers and sisters in Christ to worship you, to fellowship with one another, to study your word, it's it's all working together to nurture a deeper love for you. At least that is my prayer for all of us, that these times together would not be seen as a chore or as an obligation, but rather as a time of facilitating a deeper affection for you and for your word. We pray for your blessing upon our study this morning. We pray that the truths that we consider would be of spiritual encouragement to us, that we would leave this place with a desire to be further conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, that we would do everything that we can to earnestly pursue the sanctification apart from which no man will see you, Hebrews 12, 14. Well, God, we love you so much. We thank you for this time together this morning, and we commit all of this to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Acts 7, 51 to 60. Hannah, take it away whenever you're ready.
those who announced before him the coming of the righteous whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man and his soul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Amen. Well, we're going to revisit this text later on in our study this morning, but um, just by way of introduction, as we read this passage coming right off the heels of one of the greatest sermons ever given in the New Testament from Stephen, who is the first Christian martyr, and before I go any further than that, does everybody remember what the term martyr means? Yeah, someone who dies for their faith, right? So, so Stephen is the first Christian, at least that we have record of in the New Testament. He's the first Christian who was put to death for standing firm in his faith in Jesus Christ. And what we see here, right after he gives this sermon to the, the Jewish religious leaders of that period, we see a faithful model of standing for the truth of God's word. So he's committed to the truth of God's word. He gives this great sermon that demonstrates his knowledge of the truth of God's word and his belief in the truth of God's word. But notice this. He not only stands firm in truth, but he also does so with a genuine love and concern for those who oppose Christ. He doesn't pull back any punches. He says, you are responsible for putting Christ to death. You are responsible for the way that you've treated those prophets who God has sent to you and you continually reject them and mistreat them. You guys all are responsible for that, Jewish religious leaders and those who have obviously came before them. But notice this, very end of that passage that we just read together, he also shows a a love for them, a compassion for them, a desire for them to not be held accountable for putting him to death. So he's saying, you guys are responsible for putting Jesus to death. Your ancestors are responsible for mistreating the prophets and even putting them to death. But Lord God, these people who are lost and who are in opposition to you and to your truth, I pray you would show them mercy. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them as he was being stoned to death. My friends, this is exactly the... uh, model that we see throughout the New Testament from the apostles and obviously from Christ himself as to how we as believers should respond to those who are opponents of Christianity. They're not to be regarded as our enemies. They're to be regarded as our mission field. A couple texts that I wanted to read in light of um, that theme and with that idea in mind here. These are important texts for us to hide in our hearts and to remember at all times, 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. So there's Stephen, right? Always ready to give an to give a account or always ready to make a defense for the hope that's in him. 
He's a man who is firmly rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word, and he's not going to budge an inch. So that's important to do, right? But notice what's equally important here. Yet do so with gentleness and reverence, or with gentleness and respect. So it's not just our stand for truth that matters to God, as important as that stand is. It's also how we do it. Those are equally important in the sight of God. We saw that modeled by Stephen. We see that echoed here in 1 Peter by the Apostle Peter. I also want to show you really quickly before we dive into our study what Paul says about this, who, as we just read from the text, Paul was there when Stephen was stoned. Paul was there, and he was in agreement with putting him to death at that point. He wasn't a believer at that point, right? Do you think Paul might have had this in mind when he wrote these words to his protege, Timothy? Listen to this. He says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. It's the same message that Stephen articulates as he's being stoned. It's the same message that Peter articulates to Christians who are being put to death for their faith. Right? Nero is putting Christians to death. That's the backdrop of 1 Peter. Peter's saying, hey, as you're being led to be slaughtered, be ready to stand for God's truth, but do so in a way that shows gentleness and reverence to those who are going to put you to death. Treat them with compassion and with love and with tenderheartedness as they lead you to be slaughtered. That's what Peter's saying. And then Paul, who was there when Stephen was put to death, he's saying, you need to be earnest in seeking out the salvation of other people, and you need to model a, a tender-hearted compassion for them as you strive to lead them out of their error. They're not the enemy, they're the mission field. That's the message of the New Testament. That's our calling as Christians. So easy for us to demonize those who persecute us, to view them as enemies. And they're not our enemies, they're our mission field. They're enemies to God in the sense that they're at war with God, they're unregenerate. Ephesians 2.1, they're dead in sin. But nevertheless, our job is to leave their eternal state in the hands of God, and we are called to go share the gospel with them, point them to Christ, plead with them to turn to Jesus Christ and be saved, and pray for their soul, always showing them the character of Christ in our interactions with them. That's the mindset I want us to have as we embark upon the study this morning. Um, and I think we see this model beautifully uh, illustrated in Polycarp's life. We see Polycarp doing exactly what we saw Jesus doing, what we saw Stephen doing, what we see Peter doing, as we just read together from 1 Peter 3, and of course what uh, we see from the Apostle Paul as well. So Polycarp of Smyrna, as I mentioned earlier, died around the year 155. We don't know the exact year of his birth, but we know he was uh, a prominent figure there at the end of the first century into the middle of the second century. You'll notice a blank there in your workbook if you're following along. Um, we have a biographical sketch of Polycarp to go through, um, which one of those points is going to correspond with what's in your workbook. So feel free to fill that 
out as we go. Polycarp, whose name means fruitful, was a disciple of the Apostle John. That's the blank there. Polycarp had a very intimate relationship with John. We also know from church history that Polycarp pastored the church in Smyrna, which was near Ephesus, and he did so for much of the first half of the second century. Smyrna was also one of the seven churches listed in the book of Revelation. We see that referenced in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. And just for the sake of doing this quickly, allow me to read that passage for us, just so you can hear for yourself where Smyrna is referenced. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the following. The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. And I'm going to go ahead and read verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So Smyrna explicitly referenced there in the book of Revelation. It is possible that Polycarp was living in Smyrna when that was written. Again, depends on when you take a, uh, or I should say, what view you take on the authorship of the book of Revelation. If it was a later date, in all likelihood, Polycarp would have read that letter firsthand, likely would have been a young man at that point. If you take an early date of the authoring of the book of Revelation, which would put the authorship of Revelation sometime in the mid to late 60s, Polycarp probably wasn't born at that point. So um, nevertheless, it is possible that Polycarp heard those words firsthand, but um, we don't know for sure. But he did pastor that church. We do know that for sure from the testimony of church history. But continuing here, this is just with a brief biographical sketch of Polycarp from Dr. Nathan Buzenitz. He writes that Polycarp's epistle to the Philippians is his only surviving letter. It was likely written around the time of the martyrdom of Ignatius, which we learned about last week. And it's also certain that these two pastors knew each other as evident from their references to one another in their letters. I want us to look at some of the samples of Polycarp's writings, and you can follow those, or you can follow along with those in your workbook. Each of the excerpts from Polycarp's epistle to the Philippians are going to be dealt with during today's study. So follow along with me. Let's look at this first one together. Busnitz notes that Polycarp's epistle to the Philippians begins with these words. Can I get a volunteer to read that just to make sure we're all participating? Yeah, that first paragraph. Yeah, take that one, please. Not because of works, 
Amen. So, we're going to do a little Bible study now, having uh, just read that paragraph. Because what I want you to see is that Polycarp, just like many of the other patristic theologians that we can study um, from church history, Polycarp was a man who was saturated with Bible knowledge. The Word of God permeated every fiber of his being. He was a true man of God. He was devoted to knowing and applying the Word of God. And I want us to see that just from this first paragraph. I need a volunteer to read John chapter 15, verses 4 to 5. Who wants to take that? Okay. Um, Need a volunteer next to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. Mac, Sai, you can take the next one. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. And lastly, uh, Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. Wit, thanks, buddy. You, you're going to read 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9, Sai. Uh, chapter 15, verses 4 to 5. Now, as we read these texts... I want you to think about how they correspond to that paragraph that Hannah just read. I think you're going to be fascinated by what we discover. At least I was as I was preparing for our lesson this morning. Of course, I'm a little biased, right, as the teacher. But um, I hope you find it equally fascinating, or at least somewhat fascinating. You ready, Ellie? Okay, so, um, and if you're not assigned to read... If you're not one of the four who are reading out loud, I would encourage you to follow along in your copy of Scripture just so you can, as I always like to say, you can see the words for yourself in your Bible. But Ellie, go ahead. John 15, beginning in verse 4. Now, who wrote the words that we just read together? Obviously, it's Jesus talking. It's in the upper room with his disciples just hours before he'll be handed over to be crucified. But who wrote those verses? John, John right? And who was John? Or no, not, not that he was an apostle. And who did we just learn just a few minutes ago that Polycarp had a close relationship to? Apostle John, right? Now, look at the first part of this very first sentence up to that first pair or that first uh, comma the paragraph we just read i'm going to reread that little clause in the very beginning of the first sentence polycarp writes this this is from his epistle to the philippians i also rejoice because your firmly rooted faith renowned from the earliest times still perseveres and bears fruit to our lord jesus christ Do you hear the echoes of John 15 there? It's clear, right? This idea of firmly rooted faith. Jesus, as being communicated there in John 15, he talks about him being the vine in which believers are rooted in. That those branches, we as believers, are branches rooted in the vine, which is Jesus. And then that last part of that first clause in sentence one, Polycarp's writing, 
still perseveres and bears fruit to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a clear echo, I think, to what Polycarp's mentor, the Apostle John, wrote for himself here in the Gospel. Okay? Now, somebody take the second text. Um, I I believe it was going to be... Who was reading Ephesians 4? Is it Mac? Uh, Chapter 4, 7. Yeah, go for it. Amen. It's a very controversial passage, a lot of spilled ink on that text from Ephesians 4 throughout church history. It's a tough passage to interpret. Some of your translations, though, in verse 9, uh, the, the phrase that's designated descended into the lower parts of the earth, some of your translations may say descended into Hades. Okay, And, and this is a doctrine that theologians refer to as the doctrine of Christ's descent. It's this idea that after Jesus was put to death, he descended into the realm of the dead. That's, that's how Hades was known um, throughout, um, or excuse me, the realm of the dead was known as Sheol. And in the realm of the dead, Jews historically believed that there were two parts. There was Abraham's bosom, known as paradise, right? Think of the parable of the, the rich man and Lazarus. You have Abraham's bosom, paradise, Jesus says to the man dying uh, next to him, the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And then you also have uh, a realm called Hades. This is all under the umbrella of the realm of the dead. Okay, So this, this idea of the doctrine of Christ's descent is that when Jesus was crucified and when he died, and he died a true physical death in his human nature, he descended into the realm of the dead he proclaimed his victory to believers, all those Old Testament saints who died in faith, looking ahead to the promised Messiah to come and fulfill the prophecies recorded about him throughout the Old Testament and testified about him by the prophets. This doctrine affirms that Jesus, he went in there and he said, I am the Messiah, I'm the one who you look to, and I did everything that was promised about me, and your salvation has been realized. That's one aspect of the descent. Other aspect of the descent is that Jesus went to Hades and essentially went there from a posture of condemnation. I'm the one whom you rejected. I am the Lord of heaven and earth. And I am the one to whom your knee will bow, though in judgment for all of eternity. Um, so two aspects there of the doctrine of Christ's descent. It's a doctrine that was confessed by the earliest Christians in the Apostles' Creed, which would have been originated sometime shortly after um, the time of Polycarp. So 
the reason why I say all of this is to show you that second clause of the first sentence in the paragraph that Hannah read from Polycarp's epistle to the Philippians, from the phrase, who endured, all the way down to birth pangs of Hades, I think it's likely that this text, Ephesians 4, 7 to 10, which is one of the key texts for establishing the doctrine of Christ's descent, I believe that Polycarp had that in mind. Another text he may have had in mind, which is another key text for the doctrine of the uh, descent of Christ, which this gets you into the that, that um, negative aspect of the descent when Jesus went to Hades and proclaimed condemnation over those who um, had died in unbelief. 1 Peter 3 18 and following. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So, that, that, that's another key text for the doctrine of the descent. It's possible Polycarp had that passage in mind also uh, as evidenced here by the verbiage he uses in this sentence, this introductory sentence to his epistle to the Philippians. But nevertheless, we see John, echoes of John in Polycarp's writing in theology. We see echoes of Paul, right? See that from Ephesians. Now the third text, 1 Peter 1 Peter 1, 6-9 that Sai is going to read. This is an explicit echo of Patrine theology and Polycarp's thought. Go ahead and read that text for us, Sai. Uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 6-9. Amen. Now, at what part in the paragraph that Hannah read from Polycarp's epistle to the Philippians do we see echoes of what Sai just read from Peter? Yes. Though you have not seen him, you believe in him with an inexpressible and glorious joy which many desire to experience. I think, again, we don't know for sure, but that is such a clear allusion to what Peter's writing there in chapter 1, I, I think Polycarp would have had that text in mind. It's just too close of a allusion, of an echo to ignore, in my opinion. Now, the last passage, it's a very familiar passage from the Apostle Paul, another Pauline echo in Polycarp here. Go ahead, Wit, whenever you're ready. Not as a result of words, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in 
Christ Jesus for good work, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk. Right? Do you, do, you, do, you, do you hear that in the last part of Polycarp's paragraph that we just read earlier uh, when Hannah read that for us? Look at it again. Knowing that by grace you have been saved, not because of works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. I mean, we've got Jesus and John, right? John's writing the words of Jesus. So you have Jesus clearly, um, Jesus' words clearly echoed in Polycarp. You have John's theology clearly modeled in Polycarp. You have Paul and Peter as well alluded to in Polycarp. Busnitz, in noting all of these allusions in Polycarp's writing, again, this would have happened shortly after the close of the first century. I mean, we're talking anywhere from the year 100 to 120, maybe 130, but we're looking at, if you take a late date of the authorship of Revelation, you're looking at less than three decades after the New Testament was written. And you see a robust theology of the New Testament in Polycarp. And Busnitz, noting this, says that in this one letter that Polycarp wrote, the Epistle to the Philippians, it contains more than 100 citations or allusions of New Testament writings. This demonstrates that Polycarp was familiar with apostolic writings, and he viewed those writings as authoritative. So, what does this matter? Why, why have I gone to such great lengths to show you the New Testament passages that correspond with what Polycarp's writing just there in the opening words of his epistle to the Philippians? It's simply this. A lot of people today want to argue that the early church really just kind of made it up as they went. They, they, they didn't really have a thorough, well-thought-out understanding of the, what the New Testament taught. In many cases, a lot of liberal scholars will try to say, a lot of the letters that we have in our New Testament, they were written centuries after the apostles. They were written in the 2nd or 3rd century. There's no way Paul wrote First and 2 Timothy. and Of course, there's no way Peter wrote any of his writings. Those had to have been uh, forged. Those had to have been seediographical writings uh, written by somebody else trying to pretend that they were Peter. My friends, it just doesn't work when you read the church fathers. In Polycarp, you have over a hundred either explicit direct citations of New Testament passages, or you have, as we just read together, you have things written that are clearly echoes and allusions to what we find in the New Testament. And what's the significance of that? It means that we know for a fact when Polycarp died. He died in the middle of the second century. So these letters had to have been written at some point before he was born, or at least during the early part of his life. They can't be written centuries after the first century, as a lot of liberal, unbelieving scholars and critics of Christianity want to say. And you'd be interested to know this. This isn't in my curriculum and certainly not in in your workbook, but I've come to know this just through my studies of the New Testament canon and its its reception and development throughout um, the patristic era If you took every church father that we have writings from today, verified from a church father, if you took every one of their writings and you looked at every citation to the New Testament in their writings, you would have over 90% of the New Testament found in their writings. 
So you have over 90% of our New Testament referenced explicitly in the writings of the early church fathers, which means the early church had access to and they had well-thought-out convictions about the Bible by that point. They didn't just make it up as they went along, in other words. That's what I'm trying to stress to you this morning. God's people have had His Word and have had convictions about His Word at every point of church history, even from the earliest eras, as we've seen from the patristic age. Any questions about any of that before we move on? Okay, well, moving on now, we have some other excerpts here from Polycarp. I've got four that I'm going to need help with. You know, sometimes I forget how to read and I need some help from my beloved youth. Who wants to help out in reading some of those? Who has a workbook? There's um, one workbook, two. Jacob, take Thomas's and help. I'm going to have you read one of them. I think Allie's got one. So, Allie, would you read one of those um, Polycarp quotes? You can take the short one at the. You can take the last of the four. That'd be okay. Hannah, you got to take the long one. I love hearing you read. So, you've got to read the long one. Uh, um, okay, so Hannah's taking the first. Who's taking the second? So it's going to be between Ellie and Jacob. Okay, Ellie. Um, you're, you're reading the third Polycarp quote because you have a workbook. I'm proud of you for bringing your workbook. Um, and then Allie will read the short one, that last one. So this, this first one, when we read this excerpt from Polycarp, Hannah's going to read it. Again, we all, we all love hearing Hannah read. Love hearing all of y'all read too. Um, um, but as, as we read this first paragraph, okay, we're going to consider how this paragraph testifies about Jesus being king and judge. It's a key New Testament teaching. Jesus Christ is the king and judge of all. Let's see how that is fleshed out by Polycarp here in this paragraph. Okay. Go for it, Hannah. It says, therefore, prepare for action and serve God in fear and truth, Okay, now you heard that. To Jesus, all things in heaven and on earth were subjected, and every breathing creature serves him, and Jesus is coming as judge of the living and the dead, and God is going to hold all who disobey him responsible. Now listen to, again, we know that Polycarp had a close relationship with the Apostle John. Who wrote the book of Revelation? Okay, now listen to what John writes in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. And you tell me if you can't hear the echoes of this passage and what we just read from Polycarp. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. I'm going to read that. John writes, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. 
His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That is Jesus at his second coming. You know, he came as a helpless, nursing infant. That's how he came into the world. He came with no pomp and circumstance. He came as a savior. He came as a redeemer. When he comes a second time, he's coming as a conquering king, a ruling and reigning Lord, and a judge. He's, if I had to quote Stephen Lawson here, which I'm going to, he's coming to conquer and he's coming to slaughter. That's Jesus when he returns the second time. There will be no opportunity for repentance. He's going to slaughter his enemies. And he's going to condemn the unbelieving to eternity in hell. So, Polycarp, you hear it, right? Jesus is king and judge. You need to make yourself right with him while you still have chance to do so. That's Polycarp's testimony. Now, the second quote, I want us to think, when we read this passage from Polycarp, I want us to think how this text encourages us to submit to God and to his word. Who's taking that passage again? Jacob, take it away, buddy. That passage corresponds to what we find in 2 Peter 1, 10 through 12. And I'm going to read that passage for us. In fact, I'm going to read the whole section because again, I want you guys, I want you guys to hear the word of God clearly echoed and testified to by the earliest leaders in the church. That's what I want you to hear. Because it's important to study church history, but we study church history so we can be further confident in Scripture and further equipped to defend Scripture. 
So listen to, this is Peter. We've already noted how Polycarp was familiar with Peter's writings. Listen to this passage from 2 Peter. And I want you to, I want you to reflect on how it pertains to what Jacob read. This is about the idea of submitting to God and to his word. Verse 10 and following. 2 Peter 1, verses 10 to 21. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I mean, it's clear, right? That, that's Peter. Peter had an influence on Polycarp's convictions of surrendering and submitting to the authority of God and his word. And that takes us to the third paragraph from Polycarp. And I'll make sure that I don't anticipate you reading the text. So uh, go ahead, Ellie. We're going to see how Polycarp lived that out in just a few moments when I tell you about how he died. But um, listen to listen to Peter again. This is more Patrine theology undergirding Polycarp's convictions. The believer's hope in Jesus Christ is greater than persecution. That's the theme of the paragraph that Ellie just read from Polycarp. Listen to how this same theme, this same teaching is affirmed by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, verses 19 to 25. And if you've got your copy of the Word of God, this is a passage really to highlight, star, underline. This is a text to remind yourself of when you're persecuted by opponents of Christianity or sometimes maybe even by brothers and sisters in Christ who are just acting out in sin. It's a great text to hide in your heart. Peter writes the following, verse 19. For this finds favor... 
If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You are going to suffer unjustly sometimes for your faith. Polycarp certainly did. We're going to learn about that in just a few moments. But remember, the model of Jesus and our faith in him is greater than any suffering we could be subjected to in this life. And we are held responsible. We are accountable by Scripture and to the living God to honor our God and Father and how we interact with those who wrongly and unjustly persecute us. As we mentioned just moments ago at the very beginning of our study, it's equally as important to stand for truth, but to also stand for truth in a way that magnifies and honors God, that models the character of Jesus Christ in our stance for truth. That takes us now to the fourth and final excerpt from Polycarp. Allie, whenever you're ready. Okay, so the central theme of this passage from Polycarp is simply this, that because our hope is sure, we are able to stand firm in the faith and focus on loving others. Initially, one key text that came to mind was uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. You can notate that if you're taking notes. It's a text that is consistent with what Polycarp expresses here, but We've already shown how Polycarp was influenced by the Apostle Paul's writings. I wanted to give you a different place to show you a wider swath of Polycarp's influences in the New Testament. And a good text that I believe is consistent with what Polycarp's saying here. A text that many of you may not be familiar with, but is nevertheless filled with rich theological and practical significance. is found in the book of Jude. Jude chapter 1 verses 20 to 25. And this is exactly what Polycarp was getting at in that passage that Ali just read to us. Listen to what Jude writes. And this is one of the half-brothers of our Lord Jesus Christ and a brother of James who wrote the book of James. Listen to this. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. 
Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. I think it's significant. We've shown, of course, Christ, right? Polycarp was a Christian. He clearly would have been influenced by Jesus. Uh, he was familiar with what Jesus taught. He's close and directly influenced by John. He's close to John. He's mentored by John, as was Ignatius of Antioch. He's also influenced by New Testament writers such as Paul and Peter and Jude. And although we don't have a direct excerpt here to study this morning, He's familiar with Jude. I would say he was probably familiar with James as well. Jude and James were brothers. Guarantee you that um, he would have been familiar with James. In fact, that excerpt that talked about bearing fruit, talked about earlier, we tied that back to John 15, verses 4 to 5. James is all about the business of the Christian bearing fruit as evidence and as a testimony to their saving faith. We could have probably made an argument for there being echoes of James in that passage that we tied back to John. But nevertheless, the point is this, guys. You should leave here today with great confidence in the Word of God, in its preservation throughout the ages, and and in its being available to Christians throughout every age. God has been faithful to give His people access to His Word at every point in redemptive history, both in the era of the Old Testament, during the New Testament era, and, of course, in the era of church history, starting at Pentecost, and even now to this present day in 2022. So don't ever let anybody tell you that the early church just kind of made it up as they went along. They didn't have access to large portions of the New Testament. They didn't have well-thought-out convictions about the New Testament. It just doesn't hold water when we look at the reality of church history, which we've done over the last few weeks. Ignatius, Polycarp, and Clement of Rome, some of the earliest examples of the early church having a firm commitment to the truths of the New Testament and all of Scripture, and that should be of great encouragement to us. But before we conclude our study today, I want us to take some time to focus on the martyrdom of Polycarp, the death of of Polycarp. I want you to see firsthand how Polycarp had to apply what he taught. You know, it's easy to talk the talk. It's easy to believe things intellectually. We've learned that on several occasions in our studies on the book of James. And if you've been coming to our midweek studies on J.C. Ryle's A Call to Prayer, we've learned that many people know the truth intellectually. They can even teach the truth, but they really struggle to live it out. Polycarp was not such a man. He lived out everything that he taught and believed about the Christian faith. Busnitz notes that the account of Polycarp's death is recorded in the martyrdom of Polycarp, which is one of the earliest accounts of Christian martyrdom ever written. If you have the book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's also recorded in that book. But Busnitz notes that by the time Polycarp was arrested for being a Christian... 
He had been a pastor in Smyrna for a very long time. When the soldiers came to arrest him, he offered to serve them dinner and to pray for them. They accepted. When Polycarp was brought before the Roman governor for his trial, the governor urged him to deny Christ and to preserve his life. What was Polycarp's response? Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then could I blaspheme my king and my savior? When it became clear that Polycarp would not recant, he was sentenced to be burned at the stake. But even in the face of suffering and death, Polycarp's faith never wavered. Polycarp was faithful to the end by the grace of God and by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. He applied those truths that he taught and believed for so many years as a shepherd of God's sheep in Smyrna. I want us to read, before we conclude, and before I open it up for a brief discussion and application of everything we've considered from the life of Polycarp, I want somebody to read that excerpt from the martyrdom of Polycarp that you have in your workbook. Hannah, go for it. This then is the account of the Blessed Polycarp, who, being the twelfth that was martyred in Smyrna, reckoning those also Philadelphia, yet occupies a place of his own in the memory of all men, insomuch that he is everywhere spoken of by the heathen themselves. He was not merely an illustrious teacher, but also a preeminent martyr, whose martyrdom all desire to imitate as having been altogether consistent with the gospel of Christ for having through patience overcome the unjust governor and thus acquired the crown of immortality he now with the apostles and all the righteous in heaven rejoicingly glorifies God even the father and blesses our Lord Jesus Christ the savior of our souls the governor of our bodies and the shepherd of the universal church throughout the world Amen. Wouldn't you love that to be your testimony? That somebody would write that about your faithfulness as a believer? Obviously, we don't do it for the applause of men. We do it for the glory of God. We live for the glory of God. But what a testimony of God's work in the life of a good and faithful servant. My question for you is, how do we get there? How do we get there? How can we practically in our day-to-day lives as believers, ensure that we are doing everything we need to do to put us in a position of living faithfully, serving God faithfully wherever he calls us, and if faced with dying for our faith, being faithful to our profession of faith, to our Christian convictions, even in the face of death. What do you think are some practical ways that we can prepare ourselves to be found faithful in each of those areas as Polycarp was found faithful in each of those areas. What are some steps we can take? I mean, to, to use a corny analogy you've all probably heard before, would you go days, weeks, months 
without eating? No, you guys have already eaten some donuts. I saw you guys do it. Uh, some of you had a lot of donuts, actually. Um, but you guys are going to go eat lunch. You're going to eat dinner, and you're going to have maybe a snack. And you guys are going to eat, right? Because what does eating do? Fuels your body. Well, what does the Word of God do for the soul? Fuels your soul. So why would you go days, weeks, months without feeding your soul? And as Hannah just said, and as we saw evidence from the life of Polycarp, he was saturated with the Word of God. That man was stuffed with Scripture. He was full. He was nourished. He was able to press on because he had a firm-rooted conviction and the truthfulness of everything that he had read in Scripture and come to believe, and he was constantly reminding himself of those truths as he lived out his life. What other thoughts do you guys have? What are some other practical steps we can take? That's one of the ones I wrote down, Hannah. There's more than what I wrote down, um, but I wrote down three. Three steps, or three practical ways that we can develop the same convictions as Polycarp and ultimately model the same level of faithfulness found in Polycarp. So word of God, consistent, steady intake of scripture. That's one. Surround yourself with people who are like-minded in Christ. Amen. Amen. No, that's, that, that's two of the three. Um, again, there's more, but uh, that's, that's spot on, Ellie. My friends... You show me who your friends are, and I'll show you who you are. Bottom line, who you surround yourself most will show itself in how you talk, how you think, how you act, what you believe. You need to surround yourself. I need to surround myself with godly people to do life with, to pray together, to study scripture together, and to encourage one another throughout the highs and lows of life in a fallen world. That's one of the means of grace that God uses to sustain and persevere, or to sustain his children and allow his children to persevere and endure hardship in their faith. Polycarp was close with Ignatius. He was close with John. That's pretty good company there. I think he was doing okay for himself with his people that he was surrounding himself with. What do you think the third one is? So we've talked, let's see, we've talked about fellowship. We've talked about the Bible. What's the third one do you think going to be? Prayer. Prayer. And why do you think prayer is important? Michael. It's a conversation with God. You know, see, guys, prayer takes your intellectual dimension of Christianity and it nurtures a heart and affectionate um, attitude towards Christianity. So it takes, in other words, it takes what's in your brain, what you know to be true intellectually, and it makes it true in your soul. It makes you not just know it, but it makes you love it. It makes it become personal and intimate and real. Anybody can read the Bible. Anybody can can um, learn theology, learn all this head knowledge, and make Christianity into an academic exercise. 
But my friends, all the knowledge in the world without prayer is futile. It'll make your Christian religious expression dry and lifeless and potentially it, it may lead to you falling away from the faith, which of course we, we know that means you were never saved to begin with. But many people, there are many people who were gifted theologians, well-esteemed pastors, prominent church members, and they had a lot of head knowledge, but they were not faithful to prayer. They were not faithful to repentance and they, and they fell into sin and they ultimately recanted their faith. Prayer is a means God uses to take what's in your brain and root it and implant it into your heart and soul. Prayer is so important. And if you guys um, saw the email last week, I I gave you all a resource. Uh, It was a sermon from Paul Washer titled Pray and Get Alone with God. Go listen to that. It will be a blessing to your soul. It will be a great encouragement for you to take your prayer life seriously. And it was, it was very convicting for me, but also encouraging for me as well to consider. And this week, I'm going to send you guys some clips from a uh, podcast that I listened to just yesterday on this idea of persistent prayer. And we've been studying a lot about prayer in our midweek studies and J.C. Ryle's A Call to Prayer. We've been going to prayer meeting on Wednesdays. This is a great opportunity and season for us, I believe, as a youth ministry and as a church to grow in our dependence upon the Lord and in our frequency in prayer. But with that being said, guys, um, we are out of time. Let's close in prayer. Let's go to the Lord and uh, prepare our hearts for the corporate gathering with God's people here at FBC Edna, or if you've already um, attended corporate worship, hope you have a great rest of your Lord's Day. There will be table talk tonight at 530 here in the SMB. Hope to see you there tonight. But let's pray as we conclude. Our Father, we are so encouraged by Polycarp's life. We're thankful for his faithfulness to you in death. But God, we, we don't celebrate the sinner. We're, we're, we're encouraged by him. We are grateful for him and his testimony to Christianity and the value of studying his life and ministry. We're thankful for all of those realities, but Lord, we're ultimately thankful for Polycarp because we're thankful for how you used him and for how you worked through him, for how you allowed him to be a testimony to your amazing grace. And Father, how you use the testimonies of good and faithful servants throughout church history to point us back to scripture and to ultimately point us to you, to direct our gaze and our worship and our adoration to you because it is ultimately you, Father, who allows any sinner to be saved and to endure to the end. I pray, Father, that as we leave this place, that we would be greatly encouraged by everything we consider together. Father, that if there's anybody here today or listening to this recording who does not know you, Father, I pray that you would take what was discussed and bring them to a recognition of their utter hopelessness apart from you. Show them the beauty and majesty of Jesus. Draw them to him savingly. And in doing so, Father, may they experience rest for their souls and that they might enjoy you from here to eternity future. We look forward to joining you in heaven someday. We look forward to celebrating with Polycarp and all the saints of old of the work you accomplished 
for your glory and the eternal good of your people. Bless the rest of our Lord's day. Keep us safe as we depart from this place. We commit this prayer to you in Christ's name. Amen.